You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Hey, good morning. Welcome back. I am so thrilled that you're here. I want to welcome our new students. Asbury's not Asbury if you're not here. And so when you show up to campus, when there is a buzz around here, this place is alive in the most exciting way. I'm so thrilled that you're back. I hope the classes get off to a great start. So I have a few brief comments this morning to kick off our time this semester, and I've titled this A Peculiar People. And by peculiar, I don't mean wearing a wig and making a silly video. I mean something a little bit different. I mean something a little bit more demanding. And I just want to take a couple of moments to talk about what, what this space is when we gather together for chapel, when we gather in Hughes throughout the semester. So there's a, a scholar named Philip Kinnison, and he has this wonderful essay, and he talks about two false assumptions that we often make when we think about gathering and worship. And the first false assumption is this, is that worship is a religious activity. In other words, uh, when, when we don't gather in a church and we gather outside of it, when we're gathering for some reason other than a religiously motivated reason, we're not worshiping. That's not true. That's false, Kennison says. Why? Because worship literally means ascribing worth ascribing value. That is, all human action is ultimately some overture. It's ultimately some kind of vote. It's some kind of statement about what is worthy of our time and our attention, desires, thought, and action. So by definition, you and I are perpetually worshiping. We're perpetually making a statement about what is worthy of our time and attention and value. The question is, what do we worship? Kennison says this, every human life is an embodied argument about what things are worth doing, who or what is worthy of attention, who or what is worthy of allegiance and sacrifice, and what projects or endeavors are worthy of human energies. In short, every human life is bent towards something. Every human life is an act of worship. Amen. Our lives are embodied arguments about what we should worship. The French mystic Simone Weil says, the faculty of worship is in us, and it's either directed somewhere into this world or somewhere into another world. So in summary, we, we can't not worship. All right, the second false assumption that Kennison says is that humans are primarily understood as these kind of self-contained individuals with preferences, and thus gathering for worship is primarily expressive. Again, he says this is false. Gathering to deliberately ascribe worth and value is not only expressive, conveying some kind of value and worth towards God, but it is also formative. It's about arranging ourselves. It's about our story of becoming with one another. And part of this formation, importantly, relates to our imaginations. Gathering creates and it refines our imaginative landscape. And the imagination is so important. Uh, There are some incredible professors who can speak to this, but C.S. Lewis himself believed that there are some 
truths that are accessible to the imagination that are not necessarily accessible to reason. If you want to know more about that, talk to uh, Dr. Devin Brown about Lewis's relationship with Owen Barfield. But, but the point is this, how you imagine the world will dictate how you act within it. So forming the Christian imagination is important because it, it forms what has been referred to as a plausibility structure. Now, this is a fancy word by the sociologist Peter Berger, and it's a way of converting our ideas into practice. It's a system of meaning that demonstrates the plausibility of our ideas and our beliefs. Think of it as your mind's foundation for what is actually believable. And this is important because it means that you and I, we don't exercise reason in a vacuum. Our very reasoning is conditioned upon traditions and forces and pressures that have come to intuitively influence how we think about the world. So let me give an example of this. The, the examples are legion. I'll just give one. In, in 1 BC, there was a Roman soldier named Hilarion, and he wrote a letter to his sister encouraging her that should she give birth to a girl, she should just discard the child. This is what he writes in his letter. Above all, if you bear a child and it is male, let it be. If the child is female, cast it out. So in his book, Bullies and Saints, the, the historian John Dixon, he says that after sharing Hilarion's story, he asks audiences to imagine that you are a friend with Hilarion in 1 BC, and imagine that you are trying to convince him that it is wrong to expose or cast out a child if it is female. What would you say? you would probably say something about universal human dignity. Or you'd probably say something about universal rights. But here's the thing. Hilarion would have no idea what you're talking about. Why? Because these ideas were not fixtures in the Greek imaginative landscape. Inalienable rights or universal human dignity was not a part of their plausibility structure. It was not the background story that gave shape to how they imagined the world and then how they acted within that world. So you and I gather, we gather here to reimagine the world and not just to make God's world plausible to us, but so that we can act within it and make that world plausible to others. So to that end, let me just take a, a few moments before I wrap up here and talk about this space. Now, for some of you, chapel that we have throughout the semester, gathering in Hughes is going to feel very natural and intuitive and familiar. And for some of you, this will not feel very familiar. So a lot of time has been uh, given over to a, a chapel frame, and that's making sure that if a speaker comes, their message is going to map to one of four categories, and some really smart men and women have thought about this on our campus. And those categories are heart holiness. Is our heart tilted? Is it ordered in the right way? It's going to be a renewed mind, hands of service, or kingdom community. In other words, when you're here and there's a speaker, every chapel you'll hear about heart, mind, mission, or community. 
Chapel builds our muscle memory, learning patterns that you and I should organize our lives around. Practicing gathering and proclaiming with a single heart and a unified voice, Jesus is Lord, our most significant political statement. And you're going to hear me say that like a hundred times <laughs> throughout this semester. Jesus is Lord. That is our most political statement, our most significant political statement. We believe that chapel is important. It's a priority. Think of this as like many Sabbaths that we do three times a week. We stop everything that we're doing so that we can gather together in this space and reform our imaginations. It's intentionality as a community. We live together. We eat together. We play together. We worship together. And as mentioned, this intentionality is formative. There's a, a wonderful quote by that great Kentucky sage, Wendell Berry. He says, the human race is a great co-authorship in which we are collaborating with God and nature in the making of ourselves and one another. We are being co-authored by God and by one another. Did you catch that? It's not just this kind of modern idea that we author ourselves. We are being co-authored by God and one another. The philosopher Charles Taylor, he says, one of the prime characteristics of human beings is that they are dialogical. We mutually constitute one another. Chapel is a place of commitment, its sacrifice, and its consecration. Consecration of what, you might ask? Ourselves. And that occurs at this altar. For decades here at Asbury, we've had women and men stand here at this podium challenging our students to come to this altar. And it's a place where we say, Christ is Lord, I am not. It's a place where we surrender. It's a place that we say, not just with our mouths, but all the way deep into our bones, thy will be done. Tara Burton says, when we are all our own high priests, who's willing to kneel? The altar is the place where we kneel. Chapel is the most public thing that we do. But let me be clear, it is not, it is not the full expression of our spiritual vitality at Asbury. That occurs everywhere on campus. That's occurring in the classroom. That's occurring when the faculty member has you into their home or they have coffee with you or their office hours. That occurs with our coaches and in sports and on the field and in the locker room, in theater, in performance halls, in dorms, everywhere. This is the most public thing we do, but it does not fully characterize our spiritual vitality. And chapel's not church. Chapel is not church. It's not a replacement for church. And we are not a church. <laughs> Asbury is not a church. We're a Christian university. So chapel is formative, yes, but you need to find a place where you are worshiping on Sunday in a community. Now, let me say our chapel speakers are going to fit within a certain boundary of belief and theology. And moreover, we would never want a speaker who's going to come in here and, and preach heresy or be heretical. But having said that, there are speakers who are going to come here and they're going to challenge you and they might make you uncomfortable and discomfort is okay when it drives us to think deeper, have discussion, ask better questions, talk to staff, talk to a professor, and reaffirm and solidify our own commitments. Discomfort's okay 
when it draws us deeper, when it makes the roots go down, when it pulls us closer to God and closer to truth. Now, some speakers may be more Pentecostal. They may be more animated. Some may be more cerebral and academic. Some speakers will be more focused on biblical justice, the plight of the poor, the plight of racial and ethnic minorities, acts of service, and the need to be doers of the word. And some speakers are going to be focused more on biblical piety, spiritual disciplines, holy instincts, and keeping oneself unstained by the world. Some speakers are going to raise the concern of relativism, the collapsing of our beliefs and our convictions where we unwittingly follow the ebb and flow of the spirit of the age. And other speakers may raise the concern of dogmatism. Dogmatism is when we stop listening. And to be learners, we always have to listen. Some speakers will speak to the perils of sin and the seriousness of the sinful condition, and other speakers will speak to the beauty of grace and the joys of a grace-filled life. There are going to be speakers who are entertaining. They're great communicators. They're engaging. They tell funny stories. Some might be a little more flat to you. Sometimes the speaker of the worship music will accord with your preferences, and other times it won't. Always It is our desire that you are confronted with thoughtful, challenging teaching and preaching in the Orthodox faith tradition. Now, let me just take a a very brief moment and tell you what that means. Theological and biblical orthodoxy is not saying what I'm supposed to say and believing what I'm supposed to believe because some dead people think that I should. All right? That's not orthodoxy. Tom Oden, the late scholar, has a beautiful definition of orthodoxy. It's this. Orthodoxy is the deeper consensus that has been gratefully celebrated as received teaching by believers of vastly different cultural settings. Orthodoxy is the deeper consensus that's been gratefully celebrated as received teaching by believers of vastly different cultural settings. And importantly, this space is not about preference satisfaction or entertainment. I love this line by the great and brilliant poet W.H. Auden. He says, I believe in Jesus Christ because he fulfills none of my dreams. (laughs) In other words, Christianity in the Christian life is not about having our desires satisfied and our dreams fulfilled. It is about tilting our hearts and bending our imagination into a cross-shaped reality. It is about you and I locking arms together in a communal expression of worship, an expression that comes back to form us. And it is about saying, Jesus is Lord, forming, reforming, transforming our hearts and our minds towards a heavenly citizenship. Let me say one last thing about chapel. How you show up matters. Your posture matters. I want to humbly ask that you show up, and you show up with a posture of humility, openness, respect, and engagement. I want to ask that you please come to this space expectant, and that expectation will not leave void. Let me close. Um, I've told a story uh, several years ago. Uh, It's a story of a gentleman named Dwight Robertson. He runs a mission called Forge. It used to be called Kingdom Building Ministries out in Colorado. 
And at that time, uh, they were organized around Matthew 9.38, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. For the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. You know the verse. They had a marketing firm come in and do a few days of consulting to kind of do a 360 of their organization. And after a couple of days, they met together for a feedback session. And the firm said, this is good, this is good, this is great. Keep doing these things. There is one problem we want to raise. This word you're using, laborer, it's not a sexy word. It doesn't have traction. People don't respond favorably to the word laborer. Leadership, they said, that's a popular word. Robertson said, I smiled, and my team smiled. And we looked back and said, I hear what you're saying. I know what you're saying makes sense, but we can't change our word because it's not our word. (laughs) It's God's word. It's not our word. Let me quote Tara Isabella Burton again. She says, Christians are meant, of course, to be in this world, but not of it. Alienation, that feeling of not quite belonging, is integral to the Christian identity. A peculiar people. We gather to grow in our peculiarity. A people who collectively say the world's word does not neatly align with our word. The world's imagination does not align with our imagination. The world's story does not align with our story. Why? Because it's God's word and it's God's imagination and it's God's story. And we want to live that story. And so you and I, we come to this space and we come expectantly so that we can rehearse the story, literally retill the soil and practice our beliefs over and over and over again. That is why we gather for chapel.